I'm confident, I'm intelligent, I've got personality, I'm a successful wheeler dealer who accidentally became a financial professional. No, not me. Edward Hunter, a 2011 apprentice candidate. He lasted one week. He was the first to be sacked by Lord Sugar, who clearly didn't have the same opinion as him. We seem to be living, don't we, in an age where we over-exaggerate our attributes, talents and abilities. In fact, we're quite creative, aren't we? And when our words are tested, we're often found wanting. Think about the language of state agents. Laws have reigned in their imaginations, haven't they? But uh, they are quite inventive. When an estate agent says it's convenient for the station, it means that the railway track runs along the back garden and it's impossible to sleep at night. When an estate agent says there's scope for improvement, it means the place is falling apart. Or when it's, the estate agent says it's compact, it means the rooms are an ideal size for a family pet, but nothing larger. Think about when you create your own CV, or if you're going or have been to university, your personal statement. We are sometimes a little bit creative in our talents. Research a few years ago suggested that millions of people have lied on their CVs in the belief that employers never check them up. In some research done, one in three people questioned admitted that they'd make false claims about qualifications, interests or personal experience when going for a job. 20% of the 1,000 workers surveyed said they had exaggerated their CV in order to stand out from another application. It's called CV fraud and it's very common. A large people, a number of people will admit when pressed that they have at least exaggerated their achievements or skills on a CV. Earlier this year, a court heard about a con man who used a fake CV to win a £165,000 a year job as a deputy chief executive of a city investment bank. Peter Gwinnell posted a CV online falsely claiming he'd got degrees from Oxford and Harvard and had worked for the investment banking giant JP Morgan for 20 years. The act was enough to convince a well-known city headhunter to put him in contact with the bank who were looking for a new deputy CEO and he played the role of senior banker so well that following an interview, he was given the job. He worked there for a month, flying out to the Middle East on several occasions to meet wealthy clients and collecting £14,500 in salary payments. It was only when the bank ran checks on him they realised his entire story was a lie. In reality, he was a convicted conman who had served six months in prison in the 1990s. Or for you footballing enthusiasts, I wonder if the name Ali Dyer rings a bell. A blast from the past, this one. You'd be interested. Ali Dyer played football at the lower levels of France and Germany. It failed trials at Port Vale, Gillingham and Bournemouth, and he joined the non-league club 
Blythe Spartans, where he made one substitute appearance in November 1996. He was with me so far. Days later, Dyer was signed by Southampton manager Graham Souness. Remember at this stage, Southampton were a Premier League team. Souness had received a phone call purporting to be from a Liberian international and former FIFA World Player of the Year, George Weir. I hope you remember that name, some of you older people. George Weir, a very famous footballer. Well, Weir told Souness that Dyer was his cousin, it played for Paris Saint-Germain and it played 13 times for his country. Actually, none of this was true. And the phone call was made by a fellow university student of Dyer's to Souness, suggesting that she'd give Dyer a chance with Southampton. Nonetheless, Souness was convinced and signed him on a one-month contract. Well, he played one game for Southampton in the number 33 sheet, uh, shirt ironically against Leeds United on the 23rd of November 1996. And in the match against Leeds, he came on as substitute for Matthew Letissier after 32 minutes. However, his performance was spectacularly below Premier League quality. And he was later substituted after playing for 53 minutes. Leeds won 2-0. Letissier himself recalled the story in a television interview, telling that Dyer spent only a weekend at the club. He first came down to train with the team on Friday, and he didn't look very good, and Southampton players thought they'd never see him again. But then, the next day, he was on the subs bench. His performance on the field after he came on to replace Letissier was unbelievable. He ran around the pitch like Bambi on ice, it was very, very embarrassing to watch. Yet according to the team's physiotherapist, on Sunday morning, he turned up for treatment of an injury. And then he left. And we never saw him again. Nobody knows where he went. Google that name, Ali Dyer, D-I-A. We seem to be living in that age, don't we, of creativity over-exaggeration of our talents and what we represent. In order to promote ourselves, we wind-address ourselves, probably to the limits of credibility. Well, this afternoon, very quickly, I just want to look at the credentials of somebody who does not exaggerate their talents, their abilities, and what they represent. And those words are backed up with proven action. And I just want to then ask you, how are you going to respond to those qualities, to that CV? We've just read Psalm 103. Just a bit of background. There's 150 Psalms. And somebody has said that the Psalms are like mountain peaks, 150 of them, reaching up from earth and pointing to God. Each psalm making its own contribution to our knowledge of God, but inevitably, amongst those psalms, amongst that wonderful mountain range, there are some peaks that stand out from others. And Psalm 103 is one of those. It's been called the Everest of Psalms. It doesn't contain a single prayer, a single petition, 
It's simply filled with praise for the character and qualities of God. In a sense, his CV. Written by David when he was older and when he was weaker. Remember David. This was not a psalm written by some monastery type guy who'd never had a life. This was written by David, youngest of eight sons, distinguished himself with his courage and confidence, remember, against Goliath. Had to take to the hills for his life when Saul became jealous of his popularity. Had the chance to kill Saul, didn't take it, and when Saul and his son Jonathan died in battle, he succeeded the throne as king. During his reign, he was at a state of constant war with several of the tribes. This is the making of a film, isn't it? He had to deal with the rebellion inspired by his own son, Absalom. And who can forget that he had an affair with a married woman and ordered her husband Uriah to be put to the forefront of battle so he could be killed. And then David married her. Against that life, he wrote this psalm, which focuses on God and gives us a wonderful and undeniable CV. God is not a choice of our tastes. He is not an option for our needs. He is God. He is independent of our needs and wants. And God does certainly not want to promote himself. But I just want to pick out four characteristics of God that we read about in this psalm to just stimulate some thought about who he is. And the first one is in verse 3. He is a forgiving God who forgives all your sins. And that means what it says. All your sins. Not certain sins or many of your sins. That would never do. If as much as the very smallest sin in thought, word or act was left unforgiven, we'd be just as badly off, as far away from God, just as unfit for heaven, as though the whole weight of sin was on us. No, it's all our sins. Neither does it say, whoever forgives all your sins up to this point in time. Forgiveness comes from the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's divine. And so when God says he forgives all our sins, he does it according to the measure in which Jesus Christ bore those sins. And Jesus Christ bore not some or many of our sins, he bore them all. And therefore God forgives all. And his forgiveness stretches to the length of the Lord Jesus Christ's sacrifice. And Jesus' sacrifice stretches to the length of every one of a believer's sins, past, present, and future. We read in 1 John, the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, purifies us from all our sins. Now, when you and I forgive, it's for a moment. 
But God's forgiveness does not fluctuate from bitterness or forgiveness and back to bitterness. When God forgives, he alone is able to permanently change a person's stateness to forgiven. How different is God from us? As long as your memory works, you can no doubt recall many hurtful things said and done to you. If we forgive, we certainly struggle with bitterness later. You know, there were two brothers, James and Ben, who, like most other brothers, were soon in a squabble. Ben hit James, and tears and bitter words followed. Accusations were still exchanged as mum prepared them for bed. With the instruction, now James, before you go to bed, you're going to have to forgive your brother. Well, James was thoughtful. And he replied, well, okay, I'll forgive him tonight. But he'd better look out in the morning. God is not an accuser. He does not endlessly nag or scold us. He does not hold grudges. He does not allow resentment to boil over into bitterness. That's how we tend to act when people sin against us. But God is not like that. God forgives all sins. You know, to be satisfied that God forgived 99.9% of our sins and that that would be good enough would be like saying that we'd be satisfied with a similar performance in other areas. For example, we'd be happy that 999 flights out of 1,000 land safely at Leeds Airport. We would not be satisfied. It's not good enough. How much more is God's forgiveness? The good news is that because of Jesus Christ, God forgives all our sins. And this afternoon, I want to remind you through Jesus, we have the forgiveness of all our sins. God's CV confirms he is a forgiving God. In verse 10, we also read, he does not treat us as our sins deserve. In fact, he moves them as far as the east is from the west, in verse 12. It's funny that, isn't it? If it had said north from south, it's quite finite, isn't it? Because when you get to the North Pole, you can't go any further north. And if you travel to the South Pole, you can't get any further south. It's a finite distance. But you try travelling east to go west, and you never get there. And so it is with God's forgiveness to us. He is a forgiving God. Secondly, in verse 8, God is gracious. He's compassionate and gracious. He shows his goodness towards those who only deserve punishment. And we read in the Bible that grace, that favor towards those who deserve no favor but only punishment, is always freely given by God. Our saving, our salvation is through grace, not by our efforts. In Romans, in the New Testament, we read, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and are justified freely by grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. Or, again in Romans, if by grace, 
then it's no longer by works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. God is gracious. Grace, freely given, goodness, to those who only deserve punishment. You know, there's a story of a wealthy Englishman who was satisfied with only the best. So naturally, he drove a Rolls Royce. It was his pride and joy. But one day, after years of perfect service, he hit a pothole and he broke the rear axle. The car was towed to the dealership and soon repaired, but without a bill. Although his warranty had long run out, there was no charge. The car was fixed perfectly, all for free. So the owner called the company and inquired about the repair. He got this reply. We have absolutely no record of your Rolls-Royce axle ever breaking. There can be no charge. The dealer's commitment was to excellence, and he would not permit a flaw to be made known. Therefore, they repaired the damage immediately and without charge, as if nothing had ever gone wrong. God's grace. We do not deserve grace. It comes without a charge to us, the receiver. But you know, it was very costly to the one who gave it. God forgives us because he is compassionate and gracious. Our sins deserve judgment, but in grace he does not treat us as we deserve. God's CV confirms he's a gracious God. Thirdly, I've got four, don't forget, so we're down to number three. Times, you're all right time-wise. He's a loving God. In verse 11, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. John tells us in the Bible, God is love. In fact, it's so crucial, the point, that he says it twice in 1 John. God is love. Our love can be fickle. Our love can be moody. It can differ depending on how we feel. His love was active before even the creation of the world. Again in John, we read, My glory which you have given me because you love me before the creation of the world. There was a love before time began. It continues now. It's infinite. And it's unchanging. And that love shows itself in God's relationship with us. In Romans we read, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. And you all know the famous John 3.16 that you see at the football matches. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. God showed his love by sending his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die for us and to rescue us from our sins. Why is that an act of love? He didn't need to send Jesus. Please understand, God is loving, but he is totally 
self-sufficient. He lacks nothing. He needs nothing. He doesn't need us. He could cut us off forever. But he didn't. Because of his great love for us. That's what love is. God, who is love, gives the greatest gift of them all, himself. Jesus came, not to empathize or to sympathize, but to step into our place of separation from God. Not just to be hungry, or to be bereaved, or tired, or tempted, but to take our place and be cut off from God. That is love. He is a loving God, and it's unconditional, never failing, and it's for you, everlasting. So, forgiving, gracious, loving, what a wonderful CV, all backed up by proven action. Finally, in verse 19, the Lord has established his throne in heaven. God is a sovereign God. Now, if you were to look up the word sovereign in the dictionary, you'd find words like superior, greatest, supreme in power and authority, ruler, independent of all others. But I look at it this way. God's sovereignty means God is in control. Like it or not, there's absolutely nothing that happens in this universe that is outside of God's influence and authority. As King of Kings and Lord of Lords, he has no limitations. Just consider a few claims made throughout the Bible. God is above things and before all things. He is the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. He is immortal. He is present everywhere, so everyone can know him. God created all things and hold all things together, both in heaven and in earth, visible and invisible. God knows all things, past, present and future. There's no limit to his knowledge, for God knows everything completely before it even happens. God can do all things and accomplish all things. Nothing is too difficult for him. Whatever he wants to do in this universe, he does. Because nothing is impossible for him. He's in control of all things and he rules over all things. He has the power and authority over nature, over kings, over history, over angels, over demons. That's what being a sovereign means. It means being the ultimate source of all power and authority and everything that exists. And only God can make those claims. The perfect CV. And it's that sovereignty that makes him superior to all of the gods and makes him and him alone worthy of worship. And yet, unlike corrupt earthly kings who abuse their authority to terrorize their subjects, God rules in love. In all things, we read in Romans, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. An amazing promise, not only because it demonstrates that an all-powerful God cares for you and me, but 
because it cannot be, be fulfilled unless the one who gives it is all-knowing, is all-wise, all-powerful, and all-loving. God is sovereign. He rules over angels. He rules over everything. He rules over stars, the weather, the sea. Remember when Jesus was on the lake with his disciples and he rebuked the wind and raging waters and the storm subsided and all was calm? Remember in the Old Testament when Joshua was fighting the Amorites, God sent hailstones that killed more Israelites, sorry, killed more than the Israelites did. And God also stopped the sun in the middle of the sky for a day to allow the battle to be won. Joshua 10, have a look at it. He calls the birds. He had a raven for Elijah. God ordered ravens to feed him and they brought him bread and meat. He has authority over the beasts. A lion that was killed by Samson or did not kill as they saved Daniel. The trees, they spring to obey him. Look at Jonah. God provided a tree for him for shade. God has power over metals. He made iron to float in two kings. He made stones to split. Remember when Jesus died, the earth shook. And the rock split. There is no time, not hour of death, or place, or torment, or creature, anything that the Lord can deliver us from. The Bible is packed with examples showing God's power and sovereignty. And when God describes himself, there's plenty of evidence to back up that description. This is no exaggerated CV. This is how God is described. Forgiving, gracious, loving, and sovereign. Well, after you've just heard that, you might be thinking, oh well, it's the word of one man, isn't it, David? Penning a psalm towards the end of his life. Just remember one thing, these are God's own words. If you go back to Exodus, when Moses was receiving the two stone tablets, Exodus 34, Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones and went up Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two tablets in his hand. And then the Lord came down in a cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Forgiveness, gracious, loving. God himself described himself in exodus he is that sovereign god when you look at this psalm and david's words and see the glory and the greatness of god this is no cv fraud this is no imposter like peter Gwinnell or ali dyer you know in oxfordshire many years ago there was a, an old christian lady lay dying she'd been 80 years a christian a long long time and now she was approaching death Catholic priest 
believing that none of his parishioners should have access or could have access to heaven until he unlocked the gate and let them in, called to visit her. Madam, he says, I've come to grant you absolution. Well, she said simply, not knowing what the word meant, what's that? I've come to forgive your sins, was the reply. May I look at your hand, she answered, gazing for a moment at the hand of the priest. I think you're an imposter. An imposter, the priest protested. Yes, an imposter. The man who forgives my sin has a nail print in his hand. God is no imposter. He's a forgiving God. No greater blessing that we have received from God is than forgiveness. None more entirely undeserved. He's gracious. He freely and generously gives what we have not earned. He's loving, pure, unchanging, perfect. And he's sovereign. God reigns. Almighty, sovereign God. His throne is established. It can never be moved. Not by anything. Let me close by asking you a question in a sense. How do you react to that? I guess when you see The Apprentice, or perhaps as you did last night, X Factor, our reaction is one of three, probably like the judges. We look at these people and we either reject them and mock them, we're reluctant to accept them and want to hear more, or we believe in them. I sit by the TV watching these people. Some of them are absolute idiots. And you write them off, don't you? Straight away. Some you think, hmm, they're going to boot camp. They might make them a bit better. We'll, we'll reserve judgment on them. And then some, there was a girl last night, wasn't there? Everybody was wowed by her. And they accepted her straight away. You know, we're like that with God. And yet, you know, the stakes are a lot higher because our eternal destiny is at stake. I'll finish with this. Acts 17, the Apostle Paul was preaching to the people of Athens and you can read his, his sermon, as it were, to the people of Athens in Acts chapter 17. But right at the very end, we read these words. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. A few, uh, among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Some sneered. Some wanted to hear more. Some became believers. Rejection. Reluctance. Belief. God's perfect qualities, his CV, not a fraud, not an embellishment like an estate agent's handout. This is God, and his attributes are evidenced throughout the Bible, culminating in the sacrifice of his son who came and gave his life that we could be saved. 
Do you reject and mock? Are you reluctant and want to hear more? Or do you believe in him?